Today, Monitor Monday is sponsored in part by Rack Monitor, inviting you to attend an upcoming webcast, the 2023 Regulatory Update with Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. Live from the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for November 14, 2022. Here's today's rundown. Healthcare providers in the Gulf states report problems dealing with one of the nation's largest recovery auditors, Cotivity. Reporting our lead story today is Jennifer Bartlett in Mobile, Alabama. We'll also hear from healthcare attorney David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Tiffany Ferguson, and Kate Brantley. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning, as we always do, with Dr. Ronald Hirsch. He's making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Let's start with some good news. It looks like we'll be seeing another 90-day extension to the public health emergency in January since HHS did not issue their promised 60-day notice. Now, one never knows the rationale behind decisions by HHS, but some think that asking the states to do the massive preparation to reverse the Medicaid expansion over the holidays to be ready on January 12th would be considered cruel and unusual punishment. From the provider side, it also means that those many patients who gained health insurance because of the Medicaid expansion will continue to have that coverage. And while Medicaid doesn't pay well, a little reimbursement is better than nothing. Maybe one day this country will figure out a way that everyone can have equitable health care and providers will be paid equitably for providing that care. Now, I must give another shout out to the Center for Medicare Advocacy for an amazingly thorough analysis of the Medicare Advantage misconduct and how that affects beneficiaries. They go into a depth of the many weird incentives that these plans offer to insurance agents to push their products. It's really depressing to read. If you wanna read it, I posted the link to the article on my LinkedIn page last week. Now moving on, an interesting case was posted last week and discussed online. A Medicare patient had a spinal neurostimulator implanted at a hospital. As you know from listening, this procedure is part of the Medicare prior authorization program. The hospital did submit the records and obtain the prior authorization number. They did everything right. The patient underwent the procedure, then developed a complication that required a second medically necessary midnight in the hospital. As a result, the physician followed the two midnight rule and wrote an inpatient admission order. After discharge, the billing staff called the physician advisor and said they cannot submit an inpatient claim because the authorization was for outpatient surgery. Now, for many insurance plans, if the prior authorization was for outpatient, their system is looking for an outpatient claim to pay, and if an inpatient claim is submitted, it'll likely be rejected. So for those insurers, if the patient's hospital course changes, you must update the insurer and get a new authorization for inpatient if they'll give it to you, and that's a really big if. But with traditional Medicare, it doesn't work that way. In this case, since the procedure will be submitted on an inpatient claim, the prior authorization is not valid and not needed. Yes, prior authorization was necessary if done as an outpatient, and that was the plan for this patient, 
but there's no prior auth process for inpatient surgery. Now, of course, the claim can be audited for incorrect status, but that's a different story. And I'm sure a few are saying, but wait, the patient was outpatient when they had the procedure. Well, that's true. The auth was needed to proceed with the procedure, but the inpatient admission means the auth number no longer has value. Confusing, isn't it? Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Solutions, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Now's the time for the Monitor Monday Rack Report with Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. 42 CFR Subpart C lays out the rules for suspensions of payment, recovery of overpayments, and repayment of scholarship and loans. I kind of don't have any idea why scholarship and loans are included, but this subpart lays out how the government can suspend Medicare payments and get recovery of Medicare alleged overpayments. According to the first regulation in this subchapter, the scope of this subchapter subchapter is setting forth the policies and procedures for handling incorrect payments and recovery of overpayments. The next regulation states that a provider must be deemed without fault. Must is the important word, also without fault are the two other important words. This is where the quote unquote provider without fault legal defense comes from. The provider without fault is one of the three main legal defenses when it comes to Medicare misbillings. The regulation is 42 CFR 405-350. Now, 42 CFR 405-351 is the third reg, and it states that where an incorrect payment has been made to a provider of services or other person, the individual is liable only to the extent that he has benefited from such payment. Benefited is the key word. If you're subject to an extrapolated alleged overpayment for, say, a million dollars, but were only reimbursed for $700,000, this is an argument to throw out the extrapolation. It's a different argument. It's a new argument. You don't even have to hire an extrapolation statistician expert in order to make this argument, although I don't recommend not hiring an expert statistician to rebut an extrapolation. I'm just saying that this is another argument against extrapolation. When it comes to extrapolation, you throw spaghetti at the wall and you see what sticks. Continuing our exploration of federal regulations, 42 CFR 405-352 allows the government to withhold your Medicare reimbursements to offset an alleged overpayment. It puts the cart before the horse, so to speak. In other news, I am talking about extrapolations this week at the ASMAC conference in Hawaii. ASMAC is the American Society of Medical Association Council. It's basically an association for general counsels of healthcare providers. The president asked me to present with him, and I thought, well, that's a good reason to go to Hawaii. <laughs> and I said, yes. 
So I'm leaving tomorrow morning, but I'll be back with y'all next Monday. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Nicole, and safe travels. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about uh, eight and a half minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Tiffany Ferguson, Kate Brantley, and Jennifer Barlachie standing by to report our lead story this morning. It's Monday, it's November the 14th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. It's important that your team is compliantly coding and documenting coding and documentation of outpatient services for infusion and injection. Now you can provide them with high-quality how-to education. For one low price, your team members can have unlimited 24-7 access to expert-driven resources, like the ebook Coding Essentials for Infusion and Injection Therapy Services, or the webcast Hydration Therapy, Infusions, Keys to Supporting Your Charges, and the webcast, Hospital Outpatient Infusion Services, Reimbursement and Compliance Update. All three resources are available now for an annual fee of $397. It's the Infusion and Injection All-Access Pass. Get your Infusion and Injection All-Access Pass today, now available at the Rack University Bookstore. That's the Infusion and Injection All-Access Pass, now available at the Rack University Bookstore. Here now with the Monitor Money Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, good morning. And what could be risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. So it's the existence of the no-win scenario. So a few years ago, Congress passed ECRA, which is the Elimination of Kickbacks in Recovery Act, to address pain or well, kickbacks in the drug treatment industry. While somewhat similar to Medicare's anti-kickback statute, it's both narrower and broader. It's narrower in that it applies only to recovery homes, clinical treatment facilities, and labs. So it's worth noting it applies to all labs, even those that are unrelated to drug treatment. It's broader in the sense that it permits patients with private insurance that also applies to payments to employees. While the anti-kickback statute has broader protection for compensation to employees. So a client asked me about the possibility of establishing a commission-based payment structure for sales folks in its lab. Now, under the anti-kickback statute, such a structure would definitely be permissible because of the employment exception I just mentioned. But under ECRA, the question is far more complicated. So about a year ago, a federal district court in Hawaii, maybe uh, Nicole will go visit them, examined this question. The case examined whether a commission payment model was void because it violated ECRA. Now, in that Hawaiian case, S&G Labs Hawaii versus Darren Graves, a federal judge ruled that ECRA doesn't prohibit commission-based payments when the recipient of the commission is not interacting directly with patients. The judge focused on the fact that the law prohibits payments to induce a referral of an individual and concluded that the use of the word individual suggested the law wouldn't prohibit commissions that are calculated on orders from a corporation because corporations are not individuals under the law. The judge effectively ruled that a salesperson could be paid a commission for landing a clinic as a client. So what should I tell a client who wants to establish a commission structure? Can I rely on this case and say, hey, you're good to go? Now, Please allow me to nerd out for a moment. The judge in that case is Judge Kobayashi. 
If you happen to be a serious Star Trek fan, you may be familiar with the Kobayashi Maru simulation. In Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, that opened with a trainee who happened to be played by Kirstie Alley, faced with a dilemma. A ship, the Kobayashi Maru, has sent a distress signal from the neutral zone. So does she violate a treaty and risk war to save the people on the Kobayashi Maru? In the simulation, if she tries to rescue the people, war ensues, and if she doesn't, all the people die. Now, Captain Kirk was the first person to defeat the supposedly no-win Kobayashi Maru exercise, though many would argue he cheated. So why am I talking about that fictional scenario? I want the story to emphasize a key point. Sometimes life gives us lawyers a can't-win scenario. If I tell clients commissions are a no-go, it's possible that I'm just being too conservative and I may be irreparably harming their business. But if I rely on the S&G Labs case to assert commissions are kosher, another court may ultimately disagree, and my advice may result in penalties or even jail time for my clients. To, to emphasize the significance of that risk, in USA versus Sheena, a California court did, in fact, reject the rationale from the Hawaii case. In a complicated regulatory environment, sometimes you really are darned if you do, darned if you don't. So returning to Star Trek in our song, if you're trying in the famous words from the theme to boldly go where no one has gone before, carefully consider the possibility that the court case upon which you are relying may not be the rock-solid binding precedent you hope. So in the show, it was Admiral Kirk, and then Admiral Kirk may not believe in the no-win scenario. I don't believe in the no-win scenario. But while his optim is admirable, or in that case, admiral, I'm not sure it's accurate. Back to you, Chuck. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. <laughs> Here now with the latest news on the social determinants of health is senior healthcare consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Good morning, Tiffany. And Tiffany, what do we need to know this morning about the social determinants of health? Good morning, all, and happy Monday. So I'm going to report today on Kaiser Family Foundation released a report on national charity care levels of, for hospitals and health systems. The report acknowledged that approximately 58% of house, households are below an annual income of 40000 and that the estimated personal medical debt across the U.S. has reached now approximately $195 billion. However, charity care only represented 1.4% or less of total operating expenses at half of all hospitals in 2020 with significant variations across hospital designations. Additionally, it was found that 8% of all hospitals had 0.1% in operating expenses related to charity care. It was noted that there was no difference in charity care contributions between government, for-profit, and nonprofit hospitals. This is surprising since, as you may know, nonprofit hospitals receive significant tax exemptions. The article did mention that despite nonprofit status, that, which makes up about 58% of all community hospitals in the U.S., many states have requirements that set expectations for all hospitals, regardless of tax exemption, to provide some level of charity care. So before I throw some hospitals under the bus, 
I do want to acknowledge some factors that may contribute to the low numbers, which include potential discrepancies that they reported among hospitals in attributing charity care versus bad debt or write-offs. However, many health systems were cited as not updating their charity care policies. And according to a 2021 study from Sage Publications on charity care, they found that in 2018, 32% of hospitals continued to have stricter policies that expected patients to be at or below 200% the federal poverty level, which means that many of these patients are already on Medicaid and very few patients are actually receiving the patients of full chair, the benefits of full charity care. About 62% of hospitals in the study were found to offer discounted care for patients at or below 400% of the poverty level. However, it was reported the definitions of discounted care were inconsistent across health systems. In continuing to dig, I found that 47% 47 hospitals actually expanded charity care coverage during the pandemic, while 12 hospitals actually further restricted their charity care during the pandemic, with the largest restriction being related to residency and U.S. citizenship. So today I ask, do you think your hospital and or health system is giving enough in charity care for your community? Yes, no, unsure, or does not apply. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, very much. That was Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is the Chief Executive Officer for Phoenix Medical Management, and we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in this broadcast. Up next, the Monitor Monday Legislative Update with Kate Brantley. The Monitor Monday Legislative Update is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Kate Brantley. Good morning, Chuck. With Election Day behind us and Congress returning, the switch to a new legislative season, both federal and state, has begun. Looking ahead, we expect to see continued discussions surrounding both telehealth and substance use disorder treatment. And recent reports indicate that the two might work better together, uh, better than one might expect. A new study released by the Journal of the American Medical Association determined that virtual care during the pandemic both reduced individuals' risk of overdose as well as increased the use of medication-assisted treatment. The biggest way that telehealth can impact substance use disorder treatment is honestly simple, by expanding access. Individuals are often unwilling or unable to seek substance use disorder treatment for the same reasons that any individual can find it difficult to access healthcare. Transportation issues, travel time to an office, lack of paid time off from work, or physical health constraints. What is different about the substance use disorders, however, is that telehealth also helps address the stigma and shame around the issue. Many patients may find that a telehealth appointment is much more comfortable than being seen in office. There's also historically been a shortage of providers offering the necessary treatment, and telehealth has offered extended reach for the providers who do. But doctors and advocates alike note that there can also be unique challenges to providing substance use disorder treatment via telehealth, and that there may be a different model that lawmakers should consider. While treating substance use disorders virtually comes with the typical worries about providers missing body language and decreasing patient accountability, one of the specific risks of using telehealth to treat these disorders is the isolation that telehealth can bring. 
whether particularly enjoyable for the patient or not, there is a social aspect of coming into a doctor's office or attending an in-person treatment group or group therapy. Additionally, the same stigma and shame that might make a patient more comfortable with virtual treatment is at the same time a risk factor for not being able to speak candidly about their treatment if someone else is in the home with them during the appointment. Many acknowledge that telehealth certainly has its own time and place. When the results of the JAMA study came out, the American Telemedicine Association noted that this was, quote, a strong signal to policymakers that telehealth can and should be a permanent part of healthcare delivery. And indeed, a recent nationwide physician survey found that 85% of respondents were in favor of making telehealth permanent for treatment of substance use disorder, and 68% were actually strongly in favor. But it might be better to look at both telehealth and in-office visits as tools in the provider's belt rather than an all-encompassing solution, especially for issues as complex as substance use disorder. Providers can pick and choose which tool or combination of tools work best for each patient's situation. Taking this idea in hand, lawmakers are being encouraged to consider a hybrid model of treatment going forward. So, Chuck, as legislators gear up for busy terms in the coming month, they will need to consider how best to support health care for this vulnerable population. Mm-hmm. And remember that as a board member of the American Telehealth Association stated recently when speaking on the subject, laws often constitute a bridge from where our society is to where we want it to go. Many providers and patients alike have indicated that telehealth and substance use disorder treatment are priority issues for them. So now it's up to legislators to craft the bridge to that reality. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Kate, very much. That was Kate Brantley. Kate is a legislative analyst for Zalos. Now it's time for the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. Once again, here's Tiffany Ferguson. I had asked everyone, do you think your hospital and or health system is giving enough in charity care for your community? 57% said yes, about 8% said no, 25 were unsure, and about 10 is does not supply, uh, does not apply. So I think we have, it looks like the majority actually did feel that their health system is giving a sufficient enough in charity care, and maybe they were not the half that were found in this report. Um, there was a question about from Mackenzie Smith from Experian on the article. All all the links are going to be in my article out this week, and I will chat you um, the link as well. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, very much for your survey. This is Monitor Monday. It's about uh, 22 minutes after the hour in your time zone. Please stand by. Here's important news you can use to protect your facility from an audit. Subscribe to the Rack Monitor Compliance webcast series. For only $75 per webcast, you can protect your facility from claim audits. With the Rack Monitor Compliance webcast series, you'll have access to the smartest minds in healthcare compliance and audit protection. But wait, there's more. You'll receive more than 50 compliance and audit webcasts. Now, for a limited time, subscribe and receive access to more than 50 webcasts for only $3,500. That's $75 per webcast and a whopping 70% savings. Subscribe today to the Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast Series. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, healthcare providers along the Gulf Coast are reporting problems when dealing with one of the country's largest recovery auditors, Cotivity. We switch now to Mobile, Alabama, where Jennifer Bartlett is standing by to report our lead story. Jennifer, good morning. So in addition to hurricanes that you suffer down there, what is the experience now with Cotivity? Thanks, Chuck. 
Um, for those that missed my last report, uh, let me catch you up. I live very close to the Gulf of Mexico, namely Orange Beach and the Gulf Shores area, but more importantly and closer, a stretch of land that sits on Mobile Bay, which is home to a phenomenon known as Jubilee. And when that occurs, it's usually before the crack of dawn, and you'll hear cries up and down the beaches on Mobile Bay of Jubilee, Jubilee. Now, scientifically, it happens due to the upward movement of oxygen-deprived bottom waters, which in and of itself has a plethora of causes. But, uh, but the end result are masses of mostly flounder and soft-shell and hard-shell blue crabs and those prized Gulf shrimp, which beach themselves during this process for that Jubilee crowd, hence the cries of Jubilee. That, and then everyone grabs their stash of their propane lamps, their mantles, their gigs, nets, old tennis shoes, and ice chests, and they run to, to the shore to scoop up the treasured and highly delectable seafood. While Jubilee on Mobile Bay is an exciting and highly celebrated occurrence, the Jubilee of the rack world is not always so much fun to be a part of for the providers. In these scenarios, the providers are the ones that end up being oxygen deprived. Am I wrong that rack and other audits will absolutely suck the oxygen out of the room? While the seafood is highly palatable, the rack audits and the auditors, like Cotivity, do not offer something so sweet as those soft-shell blue crabs and the Gulf shrimp. Let's be honest, they can kind of make you nauseous. So diving into the waters of the rack audits, specifically for Regions 2 and 3, the contractor is Cotivity, which is formerly known as Connolly. They have recently made some pretty significant changes to their provider portal. And in the world of a payer or third-party portal, usually a provider is well-informed ahead of any changes, ideally at least by 30 days or more. This was definitely not the case with Cotivity. One day it was business as usual, and then the next day it was not. While some of the changes made were definitely in the favor for the providers, like a document upload, the mere change with no heads up made workflow extremely difficult. Government audits, regardless of the contractor, have specific timelines and expectations attached. But with that in mind, the general rollout was devoid of any proper notification to the providers. Logically, the contractor administering the said timelines and expectations should be mindful of the sheer burden that is already on the provider to maintain compliance with all the components of the audit. So when Cotivity up and changed their entire portal, needless to say, it was like being beach seafood waiting on the piercing of the gig. Speaking for our organization, there was no communication received either by snail mail, email, or fax. Even if an organization such as ours, who has multiple facilities carrying their own NPIs and PTNs, didn't receive notification at one facility, at best it would have at least been received at another facility, but this was not the case. As well, Cotivity did not transfer any previous security over to the new platform, so for each NPI and PTAN, providers had to totally start over from scratch. For us, that was eight facilities multiplied by the number of users for all those facilities, and then of course each NPI and PTAN requires its own individual sign-up on the new portal. That adds up quickly. But moving on, uh, back to the structure of the portal, it was not even tested and ready at the time of the rollout. We all know that with any new platform, we expect bugs, but that was not the gripe here. It was just flat out not ready. For extremely busy providers who are already underwater with government and MA plan audits, this was just not acceptable. How do you train on the portal when the platform is not finished? 
in that underwater atmosphere, having to stop and train and then retrain and then retrain some more is just far from acceptable. With the number of providers that they serve, Cotivity could have easily reached out to two or three organizations in each state and done some beta testing so that at Go Live, the service could have been used right out of the box. Please remind me, and how much money are they making from CMS? Could they not have spared some time to have this polished and ready? So, my friends, the oxygen was sucked out of the water and we found ourselves beached, as I'm sure you did the same. I'm not sure about you, but we are ready for contractors like Cotivity to quit cutting off our oxygen and throwing us on ice. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Jennifer, very much. That was Jennifer Bartlett. Jennifer is the Systems Coordinator of Clinical Audits and Disputes at Infirmary Health in Mobile, Alabama. David, we've got just a couple of minutes to uh, talk about some of the comments that have been coming in. David, it's yours. So, Kate, this is a question for you. How, how are the states handling telehealth? And is there consistency in the state? Um, and kind of in, both in terms of licensure and then sort of how like Medicaid coverage works and the like. Yeah. So, you know, the need for telehealth, of course, emerged um, primarily during the COVID-19 pandemic and has been tied to states of emergencies, waivers, temporary policies, things like that. Um, and so as those kind of expire, um, we're starting to see states codify all or some of the provisions that they found worked best for them. So, you know, every state has been different. Some of them do overlap. The the common themes we're seeing are, of course, what does credentialing look like? Um, you know, can a person from one state treat another person in another state? Where do they need to be licensed? Um, and then reimbursement, of course, is, is really an issue. Is it reimbursed the same as an inpatient um, or in-office visit? Uh, and then looking at the physician's patient relationship. Is that necessary? Do you have to have an established one? And I think we're really starting to see states embrace um, what I mentioned in my report today of kind of a hybrid model, um, looking at, you know, both in-office and telehealth visits as the path forward. And so we're really starting to see a lot of pre-files on this issue and expect to see quite a few more in the next few weeks um, and, and be able to really see where states are going now that these waivers and temporary policies are expiring. Thank you so much, Kate. And Chuck, I'll turn it back to you. Thanks, David, very much. And thank you, Kate. And that is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists this morning, Kate Brantley, Nicole Emanuel, Tiffany Ferguson, David Glazer. Thanks, David. And Dr. Ronald Hirsch and, of course, Jennifer Bartlett, who reported our lead story. And thanks to Rack Monitor for sponsoring, in part, today's Monitor Monday. Be sure to register for this very important webcast. It's coming your way shortly. The 2023 Regulatory Update with Dr. Ronald Hirsch is going to be a great one, folks. Be sure to register now and get your seat reserved. And remember, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, Google Play. And when you do rate us, give us a review. And one more thing before we go, be sure to join me tomorrow on Talk 10 Tuesday. We're going to be reporting on patient safety indicators. As you know, that's a very important information that your team needs to have. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, reporter for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.